Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Dissident Podcast with me, Chris Thompson. The Art of Assassination Piety, Paintings and Murder in a Single Room For those interested in the history of Florence, Easter brings the anniversary of the Patsy Conspiracy, a plot which was calculated to seize control of the city through a violent coup on Easter Sunday, 1478. But what few people realise is that the behaviour of one of the protagonists on the day is connected to an iconic artwork in the Palazzo Medici, now the Palazzo Medici Riccardi, and that connection can be made thanks to a famous inventory of the goods in the Palazzo drawn up after the death of Lorenzo the Magnificent in 1492. The inventory also tells us that what we see in that beautiful artwork disguises the harsh truth of Florentine power politics, as demonstrated by the bloody events of the Pazzi conspiracy. The conspiracy was hatched between Francesco de Pazzi, who was head of the Pazzi Bank in Rome, and Francesco Salviati, the nephew of Pope Sixtus IV, an Archbishop of Pisa. The motive was provided by the political aspirations of the Pazzi family within a Florence which was controlled by the Medici, and also the expansionist policy of the Pope and his family, intent on seizing the lordships of cities in the Romagna, a move which was being actively resisted by Lorenzo de' Medici. Military backing for the coup was to be provided chiefly by a renowned mercenary commander, the condottiere Federico de Montefeltro. For many years it was believed that Montefeltro was the epitome of the Renaissance prince, a patron of artists and a man of honour, yet now we know he was only too ready to betray his friend Lorenzo de' Medici and see him dead. The plot was personally sanctioned by the Pope, apparently with the immortal phrase, as long as there be no killing. But no one can have been in any doubt at all. In order for the coup to be successful, the troublesome Lorenzo de' Medici and his young brother Giuliano would both have to die. There were various delays and frustrations for the plotters, and they eventually determined to strike in the Duomo of Florence during the service on the morning of Easter Sunday, April 26th, 1478. But as it turned out, they were only partially successful, as the two Medici brothers frustratingly stayed in two different parts of the cathedral during the service. Giuliano was caught unawares by Francesco de Pazzi and Bernardo Bandini Baroncelli, another condottiere, who together managed to strike him 19 times with their daggers as he fell to the floor. The attack was so frenzied that at one point Francesco missed Giuliano completely and drove his dagger right through his own thigh. Lorenzo was luckier. He was attacked by Antonio Maffei and Stefano da Bagnone, two priests and inexpert in the use of weapons. He was forewarned when Maffei grasped his shoulder from behind to ready his blow, and Lorenzo only received a superficial wound to the neck as he turned, drew his own sword and fought them off. To coincide with the attack... Archbishop Salviati had arrived at the seat of government, the Palazzo della Signoria, with another accomplice, Jacopo di Poggio Bracciolini, and a group of Perugian mercenaries disguised as the Archbishop's entourage. His mission was to deliver an ultimatum from the Pope to the Gonfalonieri di Giustizia, the standard bearer of the Republic, that the rule of the Medici was over, and the mercenaries were to kill anyone who resisted. Salviati was nervous, though, and his anxiety steadily rose while he was forced to wait for the Gonfalonieri to finish his lunch. Eventually, when he was finally admitted to deliver his message, Salviati was so nervous that he was barely able to do so, stammering and tripping over his words. 
When he was finished, the reaction of the gonflonieri was immediate and decisive. He took an iron cooking spit from the fireplace and attacked Salviati with it, beating him to the ground. He then ordered the great bell of the palazzo to be rung to sound the alarm. It was the traditional signal for the Florentines to assemble in times of crisis, and they poured onto the streets. The Pazzi and their supporters still tried to raise a popular revolt against the Medici, but they failed spectacularly. The people instead supported the Medici, and Francesco de Pazzi, bleeding heavily from his self-inflicted wound, was dragged to the Palazzo della Signoria and hanged from a window, along with Archbishop Salviati and Bracciolini. Two of Salviati's companions were strangled, and their bodies also left hanging. The Perugian mercenaries were butchered inside the palazzo, and their heads and hands were carried outside, held aloft on the points of swords and spears. In an attempt to curb the fury of the public, Lorenzo showed himself at one of the upper windows of the Palazzo Medici, but despite his calls for restraint, the furious citizens seized and killed many supporters of the Pazzi faction. Some were just taken up to the roof of the Palazzo della Signoria, and then hurled to their deaths in the piazza below. All the main conspirators were eventually caught and executed. The two priests who tried to kill Lorenzo were castrated before they too were hanged. Jacopo de Pazzi, the head of the family, was captured after fleeing the city. He was brought back to Florence, tortured, and later hanged from the window of the Palazzo della Signoria alongside the rotting remains of the others. After burial, his corpse was disinterred by a mob of young Florentines and dragged to the Palazzo Pazzi, where they used its decomposing head as a door knocker, shouting that the fine knight, the master of the house, wished to enter. When the doors remained closed, they took the body and threw it into the river. Further downstream, where the river passed out of the city, it was seen floating along by a gang of boys who dragged it back to the shore, hung it up on a tree and then beat it with sticks. When their gruesome game was over, they threw the corpse back into the river again. Giambattista de Montesecco was another mercenary involved in the plot. He'd originally been given the job of killing Lorenzo, but he found himself unable to murder a man who he personally found amiable and charming. When taken prisoner, he revealed the entire plot under torture. He was then beheaded. Luckily for Florence, the military leadership of the condottiere Federico da Montefeltro had been denied to the conspirators when he broke his leg in an accident, falling through an apparently rotten wooden floor. After the failure of the coup, the mercenary troops that had been held in readiness to enter the city on the deaths of the Medici did not intervene. It was over. The Pazzi conspiracy had failed. So what do these events have to do with the inventory I mentioned, and what of that artwork? The artwork is the magnificent frescoed interior of the Medici family chapel in their Grand Palazzo on the Via Larga. The chapel was a space within the palazzo with a uniquely dual nature. It was sacred and yet also secular. It was public in a limited sense because important guests would be invited to see it, but it was also absolutely private. It allowed the family to worship without leaving the safety of their palazzo whilst also being the place where the most private of family meetings took place, discussing business and affairs of state, interests which stretch far beyond Florence to other Italian states and right across Europe. The chapel is found on the first floor of the palazzo, the Piano Nobile, and today is reached by the staircase that so nearly led to its destruction. In the late 17th century, the Riccardi family, who had succeeded the Medici's owners of the palazzo, decided to open up a grand staircase rising from the central courtyard, and its landing on the Piano Nobile would have to cut into the southwest corner of the chapel. There was even talk of demolishing the chapel entirely, 
but fortunately certain cultured Florentines made their objections known and the chapel was saved. This was done at the cost of having the southwest corner moved back, folded inwards if you will, and a doorway being opened up there. Fortunately, the frescoes in that part of the chapel were mostly saved, transferred onto the new walls. Entering the chapel from that landing now, we move from the cool grey and white of the stone staircase and plastered walls of the landing to vibrant colour, silver and gold, gleaming marble and the deep lustre of polished woods. This intimate space is now brightly lit, whereas originally the almost total absence of natural light meant that it would have been lit by flickering candlelight. I've visited the chapel many times, but even so, I still catch my breath every time as I enter. Above your head, the beamed wooden ceiling is heavily carved and gilded. The floor you step onto is an elaborate geometrical mosaic of white marble and deep red porphyry inlaid with other semi-precious hardstones. Around the walls of the chapel are stalls for the worshippers, the seats elaborately carved and inlaid with other woods in delicate patterns. But it's the painted walls above them which draw your eye into a world of brilliant colour. Painted by Benozzo Gozzoli, the cycle of frescoes was begun in the summer of 1459 and was completed by 1462. The frescoes showed the journey of the Magi, their procession winding its way down from the green hills in the distance on the east wall, the figures in the foreground at the head of the procession wrapping around all three walls of the chapel proper. The scene takes place in Palestine, but the setting is very clearly the Tuscan countryside. Opening off this is the Scarcella, a smaller rectangular space containing the altar, frescoed with angels in adoration on the walls either side. The altar is made of white marble and red porphyry, and originally bore the adoration of the child Jesus by Filippo Lippi, now in Berlin, and replaced by a 19th century copy. The altar was once adorned with the precious reliquary of the Passion, now in the nearby Museo dell'Opera del Duomo. In the main chapel, the figures at the head of the procession include superbly detailed portraits of members of the Medici family and their household, their friends and allies, and important political figures of the time. The subject has its origins in the Medici's participation in the processions laid on every four years to celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany on January the 6th. Cosimo de' Medici, the elder, was instrumental in supporting and promoting the company of the Magi that oversaw the events. He was their patron, he sat on the commission of ten festaioli, and he saw to it that a prominent member of the family always participated in the procession down the Via Larga, from the Convent of San Marco to the Baptistry of San Giovanni, passing directly beneath the windows of this very palazzo. In 1451 it was Cosimo himself who took part, and in 1459 it was his grandson, the 11-year-old Lorenzo, who participated. The figure of the young Magus Caspar on the east wall is thought to be a rendering of how Lorenzo was dressed for that procession. These frescoes also contain very realistic representations of Florentine clothing, as the Medici inventory testifies, and although they were created around 18 years before the Patsy conspiracy took place, they show us that the Medici were already well aware of the risks of moving outside the safety of the walls of their palazzo. Hidden beneath those sumptuous fabrics are armours of the finest steel. 15th century Italian armour was not the ponderous and ineffective stuff that people lumber about in on battlefields in Hollywood movies. It was light. A whole field armour weighed only around 25 kilos. It was highly flexible, and the best was carefully made to measure. After all, Armour had to allow the warrior to fight with as little restriction to his movements as possible. It also had to be effective, and it was. Swords and daggers wouldn't touch it, 
and only the heaviest hand weapons like maces or axes, or a strike from the lance of a galloping rider, had a chance of piercing it. It was even proofed by being tested against the most powerful ballistic weapons of the day. 15th century armours were shot at from close range with a crossbow, and the marks from the points of the missiles were left on their surfaces to show that they'd defeated them. In short, if armour had been heavy and ineffective, not to mention expensive to produce, then the warriors of the day wouldn't have used it. However, not all battlefield armour was made of large, rigid plates that could be readily seen. Many warriors wore more flexible body armour made of many small plates riveted into fabric covers. These were known in Italy as corazzine, meaning little cuirasses, and we find various luxury examples in the Medici infantry. For example, in Lorenzo's bedroom were three corazzini of different sizes, covered with silk and damask. Frustratingly, the colours of their fabric covers are not specified. A silk cover could have been a plain colour, or even cangiante, where the warp and weft of the fabric were woven from two contrasting colours, like blue and yellow, creating an iridescent effect which could appear to be a different colour from different angles. But damask was a fabric with precise woven patterns. These could be created from just one colour, using the contrast of a glossy warp against a duller ground, but often they contrasted two or more colours in intricate designs, just as we see in the frescoes. In the room which had been the armoury of Lorenzo's father, Piero, we find some more of this type of body armour, and this time their colours are described. Two corazzini, one covered with peacock velvet, the other with tane velvet. Peacock, paconazzo in the local dialect, was a Florentine term for a fabric of a deep reddish purple colour, like the tail feathers of a peacock. Tane, on the other hand, is a local term for chestnut brown. So these two corazzini were both covered in silk velvets of rich reddish colours. The size and distribution of the plates within this type of body armour were usually evident from the heads of the rivets which attached them to their outer covers, and these rivets could be richly gilded. But the visible presence of those rivets was not always desirable. Sometimes, the defensive nature of a garment was deliberately disguised, and the Gotsley frescoes and the Medici inventory take us into a world of armour hidden within civilian clothing, rather than overtly worn battlefield armour. These armoured clothes have no patterns of rivets to give away the positions of the plates inside them, and the only way to identify them in the frescoes is to look very carefully for the telltale signs of steel armour, shape and rigidity. If we take the mounted figure of the Magus Caspar as played by the young Lorenzo, what at first appears to be a sumptuous gown of gold and white damask, reaching down to his knees, with hanging sleeves, decorated with gems and trimmed with fur, actually turns out to be something else. If we look carefully at Caspar's torso, we can make out a clear line curving up from his side to a point over his breastbone. It looks like it's just part of the patterning of the fabric, but it also perfectly corresponds to the shape of the outer plate of an Italian cuirass which protected the stomach. Unlike Caspar's sleeves, this part of the garment is perfectly smooth with no folds or wrinkles, as is the part over his chest. They both appear to be rigid, strengthening the suspicion that these areas might actually be plate armour covered in fabric. Finally, we have the area of the gown over Caspar's abdomen. This is similarly smooth, but in addition, not only does its profile perfectly match the laminated part of a cuirass which protected the abdomen and hips of the wearer, but its rows of patterning even suggest, or perhaps disguise, horizontal laminations. It's only when we look at the skirt of the gown, below the jewelled belt worn by Caspar, 
that the golden white damask is of the pleated form we should expect there. But that pleating should fall directly from at least his waist, and could even begin over the chest, as seen on the gowns worn by other figures in the frescoes. So as a simple fabric garment, Casper's gown makes no sense at all. What would make sense is that what Casper is actually wearing is a fully-fledged Italian cuirass, covered with rich fabric and fitted with hanging sleeves and a pleated skirt, all done to make it look like an elaborate gown. And if we turn to look at a group of figures on the adjacent south wall, there is more evidence to support this interpretation. These men are on foot, accompanying the mounted Magus Balthazar, and they are all apparently wearing sleeveless gowns of green damask over doublets also made of damask, in a rich blue, red or crimson, as can be seen from their sleeves and collars. These figures do not wear the sort of broad belt worn by Caspar, so we can clearly see the transition from the smooth part of these garments over the hips to the pleated skirt falling down over their upper thighs. The transition is the sort of scalloped hem that was used on Corazzine, so once again we have a feature consistent with plate body armour. Lastly, these gowns also have gilded metallic borders at their necks. At first glance, this decoration might appear to be some sort of textile border, or perhaps embroidery, but one figure with his back to us shows very clearly that this is a metal border running around the back of his neck, and that can only have been applied to plate steel armour. Once again then, what we have here are examples of body armour covered in rich textiles and fitted with pleated skirts to give the impression of gowns. Unlike Casper's body armour though, less trouble has been taken to disguise the nature of their garments. No ordinary textile gown would have had metal bordering around the neck, but that may be because these figures are obviously Balthazar's guards, as some of them are carrying spears, so there might be some expectation that they would be wearing armour. These figures are all part of a big parade, a special event held in public, but the risk of assassination meant that armour could be disguised even more effectively within everyday clothes, to the point where you wouldn't even know if the person standing right in front of you was wearing it. Not knowing whether a man's doublet was armoured or not might lead a would-be assassin to waste a blow on that armour, buying precious seconds to respond. In a chest in the Great Chamber of Lorenzo the Magnificent, the Medici inventory lists one doublet of our lord lined with mail. Mail, known as chainmail by many, was a form of armour made of thousands of small rings, each one of which passed through four others to create a sort of steel fabric, and it was flexible enough to be easily and invisibly sewn into the lining of clothes. The Italian word for male is maglia, and even today a sweater is known as una maglia, because of the similarity of the knitted structure of a woolen sweater to the interlinked rings of a male shirt. But as armour, male was not as effective as steel plates, and sure enough, in the inventory, we find an example of clothing lined with those as well. In Lorenzo's bedroom was a doublet lined with fine Milanese lames. A lame was the period term for the individual articulated plates of an element of armour. Fine, in this case, is in the sense of well-made, and Milan was the city where the finest armour was produced. Florence had its own thriving community of armourers and weapon makers, but evidently, when it came to defeating an assassin's dagger, Lorenzo wanted only the best for his own person. And it was not just clothing for the torso that was armoured. The inventory even contains an example of a hat armoured with plates, that might actually have saved Giuliano. The wound that was immediately fatal to him was a downward dagger blow that practically split his skull in two. This use of armoured clothing, 
and hats, explains Francesca de Pazzi's behaviour towards Giuliano on the morning of the attempted coup. Giuliano had decided not to go to Mass in the cathedral, as he had injured his leg in an accident some days before, and it was still troubling him. The plotters had to make sure that the two brothers were disposed of together, and when Giuliano didn't arrive at the Duomo, Francesco had to go to the Palazzo Medici to see him and persuade him to come to Mass. As Giuliano limped down the street towards the cathedral, Francesco put his arm round him and gave him a friendly squeeze, joking that he was getting fat from being off his feet since the injury. What he was actually doing was making sure that Giuliano wore no armoured clothing. Perhaps because of the hurry to go out, or because of his injured leg, Giuliano had unwisely not worn any armour. Nor was he wearing a sword. You may have been surprised by the fact that Lorenzo was openly wearing a sword when he went to Mass, and that may have been a privilege of his rank. But it was common practice for men to carry daggers for their own protection, which were often so large as to effectively be swords, so the weapons carried by the assassins would not have excited comment either. Francesca de Pazzi had ascertained that Giuliano was not wearing any armour, but Lorenzo was another matter. Not knowing whether he was wearing armoured clothing of any kind may explain why Lorenzo's inexpert attackers went for his neck. They may have been instructed to go first for any areas that were obviously vulnerable, to avoid warning him with a blow that might have been turned by hidden armour. As it turned out, the hand that Maffei put on his shoulder gave him all the warning he needed. He fought off his attackers, and was then quickly moved to safety in a sacristy by friends, as chaos erupted in the cathedral, and Giuliano lay dead in a pool of his own blood. Standing here, surrounded by Gottsley's great masterpiece, it's difficult to reconcile the poise, calm and elegance of his figures with the violent bloodletting of the Patsy conspiracy in its immediate aftermath, nearly two decades later. Yet that is precisely what they prefigure. Rather than seeing these frescoes as just another example of the wealthy patrons of an artwork inserting themselves into events from the Bible and set in the Renaissance present day, what we actually have here is a very real depiction of the precautions taken when the young scion of the House of Medici, Lorenzo, took part in a public event, making a conspicuous target perched on top of a horse. He was clothed in the sort of body armour that would have stopped a shot from a battlefield crossbow and was surrounded by a swarm of armed and armoured bodyguards who were doubtless constantly scanning the crowd lining the street for potential threats, just like a modern-day security detail. Yet nearly 20 years later, Giuliano's failure to adhere to those security precautions cost him his life. So as beautiful as Gottsley's frescoes are, Standing in this jewel box of a chapel, most visitors are completely unaware that the sumptuous clothes of the characters depicted conceal the brutal reality of power politics in Renaissance Florence. For the Medici, their allies, or rivals, it was simply not enough to dress to impress. They had to dress to survive. In making this podcast, I've been wrestling with an absolutely stinking cold, which I hope... <laughs> hasn't detracted too much from the content. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to support my work as an independent historian, then please head on over to www.renaissancedissident.com forward slash publications, where you can buy my ebooks. Or if you like, you can always buy me a coffee. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Oh, oh, oh.